this. She said, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. You know, the ancient world and ancient cities, ancient cities were closely compact together geographically. Um, in many ancient cities, archaeologists estimate that, that you would have about 240 residents per acre. When you look out at Meridian, Idaho, how many residents do you have here <laughs> per acre? You know, maybe a dozen or a half a dozen. In the ancient world, you would walk everywhere. And there would be large crowds in every street. You'd be in markets. You'd rub shoulders with people all the time. Now we drive everywhere. And we drive mostly by ourselves. Here in the city of Boise, we don't have really any mass transit to speak of. So it's not even like, say, New York, where you're riding into town on a, on a train or your other cities riding on a bus side by side to another human being twice a day. Instead, here... We pull into our driveways, we you know, wave at our neighbors, hi neighbor, and vroom, you know, immediately our garage doors go down. Leprosy is, the loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. There are plenty of studies out there which have diagnosed a new phenomenon. They, they speak of cyber solitude. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, if you go and you pull yours up, you'll see that you have hundreds, maybe even thousands of friends on those. And yet study after study indicate they actually contribute to the overall loneliness of our lives. There was a study that came out um, within the last month, I'll say. They interviewed, they surveyed 20,000 Americans. And what they found, the loneliest people in America turn out to be Generation Z. Your, your 18 to 20-year-olds are the loneliest people in America, followed by millennials, followed by my generation, which I don't even know what, I'm 42, I don't know what my generation is, is called, followed by the baby boomer, boomers. The only group in America that is, is not lonely are those 72 and above, the greatest generation. The, the younger you are, the more lonely you are in America as a general rule. And then finally, I mean, one other thing that might account for the, uh, this plague of modernity upon us, this aspect of modernity. Um, you may have heard sociologists speak in categories of strong ties and weak ties. Strong ties are the ties that exist between a mother and a child, a brother and a sister, a best friend and a best friend. Weak ties are the relationships you have with your barista, or your, your favorite grocery store clerk, your banker, a co-worker you share a meal with once or uh, every month or two. And we obviously live in a world full of lots of weak ties and very few strong ones. As one author put it, it's easier than ever before to be connected to everybody but be in deep community with nobody. And adding to that fact is that even the strong ties that maybe in previous generations um, were, were more commonplace. I mean, now we have, I think it's the very first generation in America where you're, the majority of your kids that grow up in America are growing up from broken families. So you may have a strong tie with your mom, but you don't have any tie whatsoever with your dad or, or vice versa. There are a lot of other factors, I know. I'm only touching... I'm speaking in broad brushstrokes and only touching on a few. 
But all of us know that we are meant for community. Like every one of us know. We are not meant by God to be isolated. We're meant to live with meaningful, deep ties in this life. Simply because our God is Trinity. He is an inherently social God. And deep down, we know we are meant to live together as the Father does with the Son, as the Son does with the Father, as the Spirit does with the Father and the Son, reflecting God, living out um, analogously the life of God in our own lives. And it's for this reason, friends, that living in community is an essential part of the Christian life. Jesus did not come to give us a privatized spiritual experience. He came to make us part of his body, which is the church. And that means that you need people in your life who know the real you. You need people in here who know the real you. The you underneath the well-liked vacation photos, the funny updates about your kids, and the happy face emojis. You need people who know your heart struggles and your past pain and people who will encourage you with real gospel-centered hope when you need it the most. So let's look together at Acts 2, verses 42 through 3, 10 and listen to what God may be saying to us about community here. And let's actually pray before we do. Let's pray. Our Father, please create all saints, create us into a community of love where the distinctions and divisions that plague the world will be put to rest so that the world might know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to us. And God's people said, amen. This takes place right after the famous, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the the famous uh, day of Pentecost. 3,000 people have just been baptized into the church. Verse 42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping (laughs) and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to be sit, sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's look here briefly at the 
some of the features that characterize this early Christian community, some of the dangers with fixating on these features, and some of the, I don't know, a vision or hope for what our church might become by God's grace as far as community is concerned. So number one, you notice immediately they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was likely not what we think of when we think of a small group Bible study. You know, in the ancient world, literacy rates were only somewhere between 5% and 20%, just depending on whatever uh, culture, specific place in the ancient world you were at. Uh, and it was very expensive to own actual copies of the scriptures. Really, the only copies that were available were, were those that were in uh, the synagogue that you would read on every Sabbath day. So they didn't have their own copy of the Bible. But what they did have, they did have large chunks of the Bible memorized that they could draw from. And here it says, they listened day by day to the apostles explain who Jesus was and how he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. They were hearing this message for the very first time. They had fresh ears, fresh eyes, open hearts. And when you think about it, that first time had to be just fantastically exhilarating to hear the message of Jesus for the very first time and to be a people who were seeing, you know, the works of God breaking out like wildfire. It had to be fantastically exhilarating to stand as they were at the crossroads of human history. Thus, it says they devoted themselves to these various things. They, they devoted. They, it speaks to their earnestness and to their excitement because this was a unique moment in the history of the world. Secondly, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship in Christian lingo is usually used for organized social ministry. We're going to have a women's fellowship. We're going to have a, a Wednesday night spaghetti dinner fellowship yeah, I suppose it could have mean that, but it could just mean that these Christians were spending time together because they wanted to and not because they had to. That's fellowship. You know, unorganized, available time. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship could mean intentional discipleship relationships with a goal to press each other toward Christ-likeness. I like this quote I have in the front of the bulletin from Tom Wright if you want to look there, the church exists primarily for two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to, worship, and to work for his kingdom. The church also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two, to encourage one another, to build one another up in faith, to pray with and for one another, to learn from one another and teach one another and to set one another examples to follow, challenges to take up, and urgent tasks to perform. This is all part of what is known loosely as fellowship. Verse 46 says, They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The breaking of bread here, it probably has a dual purpose. Breaking of bread is simply that we share a meal together. We get around a table together. What was amazing about Christianity, Christianity was the only religion in that world which asked everyone from all different social stratas to come and gather around a table together. That was revolutionary. Nobody did that. Um, no religion was like that. So they, they share a meal together. 
And then the breaking of the bread probably also refers to the Eucharistic meal that they shared together. I've tried to say, I really do believe this, that the Eucharist that we celebrate on Sunday, this fellowship meal is supposed to spread out over the course of the week and and give birth to many more meals. Christians really ought to be eating together around the table all the time. Um, And as an outflowing of what we do on Sunday morning. What else does it say? It says that they devoted themselves to prayers, which is probably, you know, they followed the Jewish prayer calendar. You pray in the morning, you pray at noonday, you pray at the early afternoon. That's where, when Peter and John are going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Um, they, they prayed in the temple courts together. They prayed in houses together. Um, if, if all you did as part of your Christian community, All Saints Presbyterian Church, if all you did was got together with a group of people and prayed with them every week, that's every pastor's dream <laughs> to have his church just meeting together. Yeah, right. Woo, woo. <laughs> that is every pastor's dream to, to, to have you praying together. One of the things we hope to do with community groups as we launch them this September is make that a major emphasis in our community groups is all of you just getting together, bowing your heads and praying for one another. That's what they did. Uh, lastly, verse 44 is the shocking verse where we read that all the believers were together and had everything in common, everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You think... Is this the early form of uh, communism? Is that what the Bible is advocating for? No, as the rest of the scriptures will make clear, Christians still retain personal property rights. There's no demand upon you to, to give or to give to one another. Um, charitable giving in the church is always voluntary. It's always the outflow of a heart that has been touched by God's generosity. And it's clear they had an extravagant generosity about them. I mean, they, they, there was a just, there was a t- togetherness. They felt like they, it, it was their responsibility to care for one another. Like we are in this together. This is not just about my personal God experience. We are in this together. You need food, we'll supply it. You need a place to say, you got it. You need rent, you need a car. Um, it's yours. That seems to be the attitude. And that's something we try to retain here at All Saints. We have deacons who are very discreet when people need money and have uh, needs of that nature. But we end up helping a lot, of, a lot of folk through our benevolence offerings that we collect quarterly. And, and I would say, if you have a need, please come and talk to those guys at the back table. And the money we collect later today uh, will be used for that. Verse 47, the result of all of this is that the Lord added daily to their number, those who were being saved. The Lord added daily to that. When I read Luke's description, my immediate thought, my immediate thought is just like, Lord, why am I not more like this? (laughs) Why are our churches not more like this? We can't help but think if we were only more like these early Christians 
generous, joyful, uh, eager to pray, eager to grow in knowledge and character. If we were living this kind of life, the Lord would also be adding daily to our numbers those who are being saved. So, yes, there's that one aspect. Lord, I wish I and we were more like this. On the other side, this entire passage, it's, it was the result of an unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. What is described here is the ideal Christian life. This is sort of Christianity in perfect conditions. When everybody is thinking the right way, when everybody is feeling the great grace of God in all of its glory, when the conditions are perfect, you know, this is what it looks like. Um, of course, the conditions aren't perfect. <laughs> They're not perfect here. It's something we should aspire to, certainly. And you think about it, you know, much of the Christian life is just that. It is aspiring to something that you are not going to actually achieve in this life. I mean, I aspire to be way more like Jesus Christ. I mean, holy to the level of perfection. I want that. I really do. I think you do if you're a believer, but you're not going to get that in this life. Nevertheless, we aspire toward it, and we should aspire to this kind of community. But we have to be very careful not to idealize it. This ideal description, um, there's no greater threat to real community than the idealization of a perfect community. (laughs) And on this side of Pentecost, all of our our community is going to be imperfect. It's going to be with flawed people who are compromised by the sins of their age, who are limited by their own finitude, who are hampered by the solitariness of their cultural moment. It's not going to be ideal. When we first come into a community, there's often an idealization. When you first join a church, there's often an idealization that, boy, everybody here is just great. This place is great. And that's phase one, the ideal. Then Then there's phase two, which is the letdown. And then there's phase three. One author puts it, if people manage to get through the second period of letdown, they come to a third phase, that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see members of the community as perfect saints or complete devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light. The community is neither heaven nor is it hell, but it's planted firmly on earth and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are, and they are confident. I love this line. Oh, I love this line. And they are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. That's phase three. That's the phase I want us to be in. Here are several ways that I think God can help make us more beautiful. First, all saints can become a place where no one is alone with their needs or their problems. We have single moms needing help with children, people in precarious financial straits, recently divorced men and women just putting the pieces of their life back together, widows and widowers grieving or sick, fathers and mothers going through midlife crises, people struggling with mental health, 
children feeling rebellious, lonely, and confused, we can be a place where no one has to be alone with that. Like where everyone has someone that will rally to their aid. We really ought to be a place that operates like a healthy family, which rallies to the aid of its members in need. First Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers and sisters, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We can be that kind of place. We, my prayer for all saints is that she would become more of a home and more of a family. I, I recognize one of the cool things that we used to have in our old building was, I mean, it was kind of tight in there, wasn't it? You know, um, it was, it was uh, I think there are 220 chairs in there. It had a homey feel to it. When you're in the middle of a gymnasium, just gymnasiums don't feel homey. Just the architectural hominess of the previous place is different than it is right now. Um, And that's one of the things, one of the growing pains and challenges we are going through is just trying to make this transition over these six months. How do we make this place feel like a home and like a family? It it has to be for the church to, to survive. One of the basic desires of every human heart is the need to belong somewhere, to have a home that you belong to, where you can connect in, where there's some depth that you share with, uh, share together with other people. I don't care how introverted you are, and those of you who know me know there, there's like no bigger introvert in the world. <laughs> like I'm embarrassingly introverted. Uh, I'm introverted to a fault. Not that introversion is a fault. It's not <laughs> at all. I love to be around introverts. <laughs> but I don't care how introverted you are. We are all relational souls. All of us are relational souls. We cannot exist well in this world without deeper connections to others. So number two... We can be a place that perseveres through the relational tensions and conflicts which inevitably arise. I was listening to a pastor from Portland this week. He was preaching also a sermon on community. I I was using it, and he made this interesting point. He said, think of the 12 apostles. Think of the personalities of the 12 apostles. Think of the different varying backgrounds that these guys came from, if you put the 12 apostles together in a small group, that would be, there would be some real tensions in that small group. I mean, this was a group of guys who one of their mothers came and said, Jesus, will you take one of my sons and one of my sons and elevate them above all the rest, the other 10, and make one your vice president and one your secretary of state? Like, that would create tension, When your mother says that in front of the rest of them. These were guys who at one point or another, they asked God to send fire from heaven to consume a village. You know, that, they're triggered easily, I guess. But the way they survived is, is because who was at the center of them, right? It was Jesus. Their, their relationships survived because it, they were relationships literally s- s- centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christian, Christian um, 
Christianity for Christians can never be an individualistic quest. It always, it's always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. In Matthew 25 verse 31, this is challenging, but Jesus tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth, that person is a liar. Since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen even if they are a very difficult neighbor to be around. You have personality conflicts with. Of course, it's a lot easier to love God because God doesn't bite, (laughs) and neighbors do. The reality is when you step forward into a community, you leave yourself vulnerable. You're vulnerable to other people's cruelty, to their indifference, to all of their dirty laundry and baggage that they bring into relationships. And it's very, very hard so hard to live in close community with one another. I'll say one more thing. I just got a couple more things here. Please don't hear the community sermon and think that what I'm saying is community is the ultimate value or the ultimate goal. It is not. A community that lives for the sake of community, that actually destroys community. I mean, the reason what we need to be is a community that is centered around the person of Jesus Christ and the way of Jesus Christ. Um, You know, what joins us together is God's love for us in Christ and our love for Jesus Christ. And what binds us together are other things like our mutual need of forgiveness. And so a community, to be a community, must coalesce around these glorious gospel things rather than community itself, if that makes sense. I hope it does. But if we do that, I think we can be a place that perseveres through relational tensions. Let me also say that if you are new to the church or visiting the church, I do know how much time and effort it requires for you to walk into a place and forge relationships out of scratch. Um, it is very hard. And uh, the, the unfortunate part of it is that it really, it, you have to take the initiative. You, you have to take the initiative and make the effort. That's not to say that we, we need to also take the, exercise the effort to make it easier for you to break in here socially by being more hospitable. But it really, like, it really, I think it's incumbent upon you to, to come. Um, and it's incumbent upon us to open our lives to you. The way that the gravity works on a church is the longer a church exists, the more insular it becomes. When gravity pushes on a church, it doesn't push us outward facing, welcoming. It pushes us ingrown. And so we just have to be aware of that, those of us who are at All Saints, to push back against our own propensity towards insularity. And you who are visiting us just got to persevere and keep pursuing us too. And and be willing to commit to uh, something that's honestly deeper than what you can do on Sunday mornings here. So here's the question. How do we get this kind of community out of some Sunday mornings? The answer to that question is you can't. There, you cannot get the type of community I've described out of a Sunday morning experience. Uh, this kind of community can only be built around a dining room table with food and prayer together and kids playing together and making space in each other's lives, time in each other's lives. 
This kind of community can't be built if you are somebody who says, All Saints is my church, and I'm there once, maybe twice a month. You know, because if you never actually invest in people, you'll never get this. But I hope you will hear me saying that as hard as community is, it is worth it. It is not optional. Um, It is worth it. Life is better when it's spent with people who know you, who see you on the good days and the bad, who, who don't simply see the Instagram version of you with all your makeup on and always happy, but um, people who know the you beneath that you and people with whom you have chosen, you've committed to a mutual interdependence with. I'll feel, uh, leave you with this one quote from uh, uh, a group of monks, a Benedictine community. I don't remember what part of the country or what part of the world they are in, but they take vows to being with each other This is fascinating. We vow to remain all our life with our local community, they say. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise... We have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving each other. What a profound statement to describe our constant search for a more ideal solution or situation and calling that a temptation and an illusion. It is. Please, I'm not saying you have to uh, vow to spend the rest of your life at All Saints. Certainly, certainly not. There's, there are no such vows like that taken for membership here. It, it sounds extremely self-serving of a pastor who says, you must be here. I'm not saying that. But I think God would say to you, wherever it's at, you need to be rooted. You need to be committed. You need to commit to centering your lives around other people or centering your life around Jesus with other people and pushing each other towards Christ-likeness. I want our church to be a place where you always are eating meals together and praying together and getting together and helping each other because you do share Jesus Christ together. That's what you got together. God knows, I'm very sure he knows that it's a lot harder to do that in Meridian Idaho or Boise, Idaho, than it was in the days immediately following the day of Pentecost. He knows how hard it is living with the leprosy that we do. But by his grace, we can do it. However imperfectly, by his grace, our community can aspire and become more like this and can be attractive to non-believers. There can be people who would come in and say, my, how these people love each other. My, how they're centered on Jesus. My, this is a place I could belong to. This is a place I could connect in. This is a place I could have relationships of mutual interdependence. This is a place where I can meet God. If you call this place your home, please pray that for us. Because pray that God would add daily to our numbers those who are being saved. And that we would um, trend in the direction towards 
this beautiful picture of Christian community as we just read about today. Amen.